Welcome to episode 29 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. It is my pleasure to welcome Ellen Rhodes to the podcast. Ellen is a consultant, a mentor, a researcher, and a writer. Across all continents, she serves colleagues, early intervention service providers, and families, including their children with hearing loss. In 1977, she founded a nonprofit Auditory Verbal Center in Atlanta, Georgia, USA, and served as its executive director for 17 years. Additionally, she secured and developed and directed a three-year federal grant providing exemplary early intervention auditory verbal services for the state of Georgia. She also established an auditory verbal program in Tampa, Florida, and was its executive director for eight years, as well as serving as an advisor to other auditory verbal centers in other nations. Her 100-plus published works include professional journal articles and chapters, as well as her co-authored books entitled Auditory Verbal Practice, Family-Centered Intervention, first and second editions, oral rehabilitation for adolescents with hearing loss, and auditory verbal therapy. Her areas of expertise include psychosocial aspects of hearing loss, families of children with hearing loss, infant development, cross-modal learning, communication skills assessment, cross-cultural competence, self-determination, and the development of listening, auditory memory, spoken language, and cognitive capacities. It is my pleasure to welcome Ellen to the podcast. So, Ellen, welcome to the podcast. And I think you are someone within the Lissell community that if if you don't know who you are, then something's wrong with them. They've lived under a rock or something. <laughs> so thank you for joining me on the podcast. And I think most people know that you obviously have a hearing loss. So let's start there. Uh, when was your hearing loss identified? Okay, well, um, I was identified when I was about two. Um, this was in 1947 when I was identified. So obviously I was born in 45. Um, but keep in mind that I have an older brother who is profoundly deaf. And so he was a couple of years, uh, about two and a half years older than me, meaning that at the time I was born, my parents were shopping around from doctor to doctor. Um, so uh, it wasn't until later in, in life that uh, we realized that my parents and I realized that we have, um, we were deaf as a result of Connecting 26, non-syndromic deafness. 
My parents were second generation, well, first generation immigrants. I'm a second generation. And so, you know, we really didn't know that much about what happened back in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, so I don't know, you know, who of my ancestors might have also had a hearing loss, but obviously both of my parents had a recessive gene. And being that they were both Ashkenazi Jewish, mm-hmm. there's probably some tribal uh, consanguinate marriages going on. Um, but I did not, I did not have as great a hearing loss as my brother. Both of ours was bilateral, but his was profound and mine is severe sloping was severe sloping, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how uh, my parents first found out. And it really changed their lives. It changed the whole life of my family because uh, I think uh, they, they neglected me the first two years of my life. Uh, and my mother had uh, uh, embraced this book by uh, John Dutton Wright, who um, wrote in 1915, which is over 100 years ago, mm-hmm. the forerunner of what is really the AV approach today, the forerunner mm-hmm. of Dan Ling, the forerunner of, of Bibi and Pollock and all of that. She embraced that, um, but she was still primarily, I think, visual. And then when I came along, okay, that's it. <laughs> My father gave up the military. He was a major in the army and decided, okay, we're going to stay in New York. And that was really the best decision they could have made mm-hmm. because uh, not only at that time was New York in the forefront of what um, was being done for children with profound lo- loss, but um, it was where the first oral school was. Uh, in fact, John Dutton Wright started out in New York, and uh, they were also first in terms of hearing aids. So my parents gave both my brother and I, each of us, one a unilateral body aid, and they were they covered our whole body practically um, because they were the first ones in the forties, and they were powerful. So it was a matter of how much power can we give our kids, mm-hmm. um, you know. So I think just based on that alone, you know, my deafness and how it affected me and my life. And my host, my family life really needs to be contextualized in terms of where we we were, the timing and the place. And it happened, it just so happened that um, my mother met Doreen Pollock, didn't know who she was. Uh, Mm -hmm. Pollock was at uh, Columbia Presbyterian and my mother was told, you know, stop shopping around, just put the AIDS on and start doing what you need to do. but that was it. And then she met um, Theo Griffiths, who decided to run an experimental uh, auditory-based program in New York City. And um, that program was federally funded with a pilot program, and it was quite successful. So I was in that program from the time I was two to the time I was five. And it was very successful for me. Um, and my brother stayed there for the same, for, to, until the same year. And I left, he left, but he was already three grades ahead of me because they had skipped a grade, even a self-contained auditory oral class. They had skipped, they had decided he should skip a grade. Right. So anyway, we moved them from the Bronx to Queens. 
And so I sent the first grade. And that during that time in my preschool year, we experienced reverse mainstreaming. Mm. And at that time, uh, there was also a book being written. It wasn't published until 1952. And uh, it, it was by um, Miriam Fiedler. And it was called Deaf Children in a Hearing Room. I didn't know about the book, but I knew there was a book. And my brother and I were, were among the 12 children pictured in there. That book had a tremendous effect on me later, of course. Um, anyway, so when we moved and we were fully mainstreamed of the single swim kind of an atmosphere. But, you know, I think that just had uh, uh, when you have negatives, or when you have less help, sometimes it can make you stronger. It can work both ways. Mm-hmm. And so we survived. Um, they were, we were the only two kids, even though he was three grades ahead of me, uh, I had him to commiserate with in terms of hearing loss. And uh, we were the only kids in our school that were hearing aids. You know, growing up in the 50s, we just didn't know anybody else except each other. And that's a big statement to make because my high school um, had 5,000 kids in it. Wow. And that's I didn't a know. Big school. Yeah, I mean, this is New York City, so there were big schools, and we were all uh, children of immigrants or grandchildren of immigrants. So it was a really very different time. But, you know, we survived. My brother being the firstborn, he was a goody-good shoe. He only got straight A's and did well. <laughs> Me, not so much. I was just, you know, into socializing, and I really never did homework, couldn't care less. <laughs> um, but the advantage that I had was that my father was street smart. Even though he didn't have a college education, he had a lot of common sense, and he was an Army guy. So, you know, whatever was going to happen was going to happen whether you liked it or not, you know. And my mother, on the other hand, uh, would not like that, but she was very language savvy. And she was the, actually, be a really, uh, I don't know if you know this actress, but B. Arthur, who was in Golden Girls, that was my mother. The way she talked, the way she spoke, the language she used, um, very forthright. And um, so the two of them actually made, a good combination for me. Um, but there were some moments of, I guess you might call them critical consciousness that led me towards what I eventually did. Um, I remember in the fourth grade, I saw a picture of myself in a class photo and I said, oh my God, I was wearing a body aid and I looked different. Mm-hmm. So um then and there, my parents said, okay, we'll get you a BT, a behind-the-ear aid. And, of course, we're still unilaterally fit. But um, so we did, and I was a happy camper. And from then on, uh, with me, it was never a question of should I hide it or not because my hair covered it. It didn't matter to me. My brother, however, had those issues. He had some identity issues. And he always felt, the interesting that he told me uh, many, many years ago that he felt like he was Clark Kent in Superman clothing. Um, because he, here he was, he was a brain, but yes, he was deaf and didn't do it well. And he would often take off his aids in public, 
which irritated the rest, the rest of my family. But anyway, um, so that was for me the first time I remember. Okay, I am different, and I got a and I got a hearing aid. But you know, no matter what, those hearing aids were a part of me. Um, I never, never even think to take them off, except when the batteries froze up in the snow or something like that. Um, and I really had um, basically a very normal childhood. I had a lot of fabulous experiences, a lot of different friends throughout the city. And uh, it was positive. I had a lot of uh, summer jobs. Um, the next critical for me, moment came when I was in high school and a vocational guide, um, a high school guidance counselor suggested um, that I become a librarian. And I was stunned. And I went home, told my parents at dinner time, and my father banged his hand on the table and said how ridiculous, how stupid of her, and da-da-da-da-da, and carried on and said, you know, he said, don't pay any attention to her, you just be whatever you want to be. But it was the first time anybody looked at me as someone with a hearing loss. And um, so that was kind of sobering, but an even more sobering moment for me was when I um, was invited out of the blue after uh, 15 or 16 years, I get a letter from this gal named Barbara, who used to be my best friend when I was a preschooler in that reverse mainstreaming class. I don't know how in the world she found me, but uh, I get this letter inviting me to come to her high school graduation. And she lived in another part of Queens, which wasn't too far from me. So I said, oh, great. I'm looking forward to meeting her. My father drives me to her high school prom, uh, her high school graduation party, which is in her basement, and dropped me off. I walk down. Uh, I mean, I walk into the house and I realize, okay, her parents are deaf. Okay. And they weren't talking, they were signing. But, <clears throat> okay, then I went, I had never met, never met anybody who signed. And so I went down into the basement and I hear this music and I see all these teenagers here dancing and they don't stop. They don't, they're just continually dancing and they're not in sync with the music. And <laughs> they were all deaf and signing. And I was, I was so upset. I started to cry. And um, so I excused myself. I mean, I even get teary. I think he's better now. Um, sorry. So, um, I went uh, upstairs and uh, I called my father and I asked him to pick me up. Uh, It's such a shock for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I decided, okay, I need to know a little bit about what I do, why I am the way I am. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, uh, a couple of summers, I was a counselor in a camp for children who had different differences. Um, one of them was a camp for orthopedically handicapped kids and another one was a camp for, for atypical children. And I found myself always gravitating towards the kids that had a hearing aid. Um, then again, you know, it was all, always uh, it was all unilateral. This is in the 60s. Um, 
And then I did a summer internship at the teacher aid in Lexington School for the Deaf in New York. Um, but I still didn't, hadn't quite decided. Um, but anyway, I was one of these. So I go work to college, happy go lucky, not really knowing what I want to do. And I went to, by the time I finished, I went to seven different colleges. So I was not a student. I didn't care. I was there in college to meet guys, but I decided to make an elementary <laughs> ed. And, um, and after that got married and, um, my husband was very, very supportive. He went to Vietnam, came back. We decided to uh, live in Atlanta. So I applied to Emory University Graduate School, which at that time had a two-year master's program. It's not in existence anymore. But they told me, well, we'd like to consider you for an experiment for research purposes. But you know, they weren't, were not considering me as a, as a graduate student. My um, college grades were so-so, B, nothing much. Um, but uh, I was pissed. I was so furious that he would do that. And fortunately, my husband was as angry about it as my father would have been if I had come home and told him. So I decided to go back and reapply. And I did. And at that time, which was a half a year later, they had a different administrator. And so they accepted me. And um, the first year that I was there, and that whole, that whole experience changed me. The, I got every course, I got an A in except phonetics uh, because they were not giving me any latitude, none mm. whatsoever. And so I had to listen to all the sounds and transcribe them. Uh, and that was, of course, I got to be in. It was not easy for me, that course. But otherwise, I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And um, then I read my book that I was in, Deaf Children in a Hearing Room. Mm -hmm. And I realized, oh, my gosh, what they're teaching me with traditional oral stuff. Um, the Fitzgerald Key and I mean, you know, stuff that we just don't do anymore. And I'm thinking, how, how does this happen? Why are we doing this? It, the whole thing did not make any sense to me because I didn't learn that way. So um, anyway, I went to uh, my first two years of teaching in a self-contained oral class. Uh, I remember coming home really upset because my teaching colleague did not know anything about hearing loss and they certainly didn't know anything about hearing aids. I mean, they, they knew the basics, but they didn't seem to understand the importance of, 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 of appropriately managing those aids. They, they, they would make statements that, that irritated me. But anyway, um, so, uh, and, the, and also during those first two years of teaching in, uh, the school system and the hearing impaired program, we had Doreen Pollock come, come and give us a, a, a maybe a two-day, three-day workshop. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. And that, that did it. That did it. It made all the sense. She made so much sense to me. I said, that's where I was different. And I, I saw myself in that. And so I immediately uh, applied after the workshop to... Um, 
be a parent infant coordinator for the Atlanta Speed School. And so I ran the an auditory verbal program in um, uh, the early 70s and um, was thrilled with the results and then decided, you know what, though, these kids are going from the the two or three years that they're with me in the parent-infant program, they're going to go into the oral self-contained primary classroom, and that was not what I wanted. So at that point, I decided to establish an AD center, which is what I did in Atlanta. And um, so since then, too, I've been an, uh, I've really been an activist because uh, this was in 1977, and I had to get funding, and everything I did took me three times as long to do because I was always getting a rejection the first time. United Way said, no, we're not funding you. The Department of Human Resources said, no, we're not funding you, and I would go back, and I would yell at them and rant and rave. <laughs> Literally, mm-hmm. I have done that so many times, and I'm sure I've made a lot of enemies, but it was the only way I could go to get something when I, that I felt was needed. I even yelled at, um, I went to visit the Georgia School for the Deaf. I won't mention names, but I was shocked. This is in the 70s, and there's a black campus and a white campus. And I stormed into his office after and said, what are you doing? You're no longer in the 50s or the 40s. And it's the, the differences between the campuses were phenomenal. So uh, I would not, the most loved person there, but, you know, <laughs> I did what I wanted to do. And so that, the rest, you know, is just uh, me as an AV practitioner. So you, you left the Atlanta Speech School and started the Auditory Verbal Center. Right. 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 And so how long were you in the Auditory Verbal Center there? I was there for 18 years. 18 years. Wow. And then I left to Florida and went to, um, and and we also got Kiwanis funding. You know, we had it Mm -hmm. established so that it would not sink. Right. It was was financially solvent. But then went to, uh, you know, there are always board issues and I, when you're an executive uh, or a CEO or an executive director, whatever term, you, whatever title you give someone of a nonprofit, mm-hmm. you're if it's marketing, you're with staff training, you're, you're married to that job. Mm-hmm. So, and, and also, you know, the first three years of that center, I didn't take a salary. I was married then, but then I got a divorce and started doing a salary. But, um, it drains you. It can drain you. So anyway, I left and then went to Florida and there was an oral called the last oral teaching center, which I turned around into an AD center. Mm-hmm. And that was my last critical consciousness moment because mm-hmm. back that was back in 95 and um, I lost my hearing. I talked on the phone, to, I was talking on the phone to my father one night, and I said, Dad, wait a second, I think my battery just went dead. It was instantaneous, I couldn't hear a thing. Mm-hmm. And so I said, hold on a second, and I'm changing, looking, looking for my family spare battery, I, and then I panicked. 
because with a hearing aid, your battery, or at least it used to anyway, um, your battery dies. But it didn't make sense that all of a sudden my battery, anyway, I was hysterical and I was living alone at that time because I had left my son in Atlanta. And uh, so anyway, I got implanted. But that changed my whole life again. Um, I had worked with implanted children though since 1984 in Atlanta. So it wasn't the fact that I had to get a cochlear implant, although the transition to that was difficult, but I had a number of issues which I really have not talked about much um, because I don't like to dissuade people from getting a cochlear implant. But from the get-go, when they implanted my one good ear, when they implanted my one good ear, they um, something wasn't right. It was hurting. To make a long story short, I was in the pain was increasing day to day. And finally, after um, a couple of months, I think, it explanted itself. Oh, wow. And the doctor had uh, kept saying, you know, come, it was a mess, an absolute mess. And I had a staph, a huge staph infection that I had contracted when they implanted me. So I was not hearing which is the worst thing that could have happened to me. And, well, not the worst, but next to the worst. And then, uh, so then I had to be on IV antibiotics for a couple of months. Hmm. And then uh, I had to, I went shopping from doctor to doctor, from California to Florida to Atlanta to Louisiana, you name it, to mm -hmm. see what can I do. And they said, don't implant, re-implant for a year. So I gotta, I have to go a year without hearing, and I'm still working, and I'm relying on an oral interpreter. And I know that they're fabulous. This woman was doing it out of the goodness of her heart, but it was so demeaning for me because I've been a very independent person. Right, right. Uh, so, and then finally the doctor said, Okay, what you can do is re-implant. Oh, and I was also implanted in the other ear. I forgot to say that. When they explanted me surgically, they implanted in my other ear. But I'm at the right age of 50. I have never worn a hearing aid in that ear. And uh, they said, oh, the brain, it'll work. Don't worry. The brain will uh, mm -hmm. get used to it and understand what it hears. And I never did. I've worked for two years at the dead ear. And after two years, I just said, you know what? I'm done with that ear. Um, so when I got re-implanted, it was like I could hear again. But, um, you know, I think that whole experience colored me in many ways, positive and negative. But anyway, I just decided, you know, uh, uh, I need, I want to go the independent route. So that's when I just left and became a consultant and a researcher and a writer, that kind of thing. So that was where. And, and we've, we've benefited from that with all of the productivity that you have in terms of 
what you've been writing. You, you've written, you know, co-authored books. You've, you know, writing papers and doing all kinds of things and presenting and. Well, it, it's been a lot. It's been very positive for me as well because what I have been doing is traveling. I love traveling. I spend months and months and months in the Arab Gulf, in Asia, uh, and every continent. And I absolutely love being a consultant, giving workshops. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't been a steady kind of a thing, but it's been it's been something that I've thoroughly enjoyed. So it's not just writing, but now it is, especially now with lockdown being two years in the making. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll get beyond this COVID thing at some point and we'll all be able to get together in person again. Um, So I'm, what, uh, what do you think? And we know in terms of the technology, obviously that has changed over the years, but what do you think are some of the bigger changes you've seen in terms of how we work with kids with hearing loss today versus even five, 10 years ago? Well, first of all, we have newborn screening. You know, it's just, there, there's really no comparison when you work with babies that are less than a year old. It's fabulous. Although I have to tell you, I'm involved in a little bit of research now, and we're finding some disparities for, for marginalized groups. They're lost to follow-ups, and we're doing a paper on that. But But yes, I mean, the fact that more often than not, children are being identified during the first year of life is fabulous. Uh, the second is um, the the hearing devices. Um, I I have only known power high power hearing aids, but, but I know today they have such fabulous, and I'm jealous of what the hearing technology can do today, both implants as well as hearing aids because they have Bluetooth technology, which I think is fabulous. My enemies have always been noise and distance as it is, and and Bluetooth really helps with that. And unfortunately, um, you know, I can't take advantage of that now because I'm the original generation, but, you know, I've been talking to several people about it. I may decide to get re-implanted after 25 years of wearing this. Um, so that is, um, uh, so hearing technology unquestionably has improved. What had not really improved so much is um, other parents. If we don't educate them, they still go through the same thing that parents went through 70 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, But on a positive note, the other positive thing is that we have fewer schools for the deaf today. Um, And the self-contained classes, again, because I'm involved in these hearing health disparity, tend to be the more marginalized groups. But I think because of the consciousness we've been going through in lockdown, that that will eventually change as well. Um, So I think we'll overcome, eventually we will overcome the hearing health disparity, but um, uh, the parents, I don't know, uh, we have got to, we are getting better in working with the parents, there's no question about it, but, the big issue there is, well, 
if I'm a practitioner working in a facility of some kind, I'm going to uh, be encouraged to provide services that are reimbursable. And talking to parents alone is not necessarily a reimbursable activity. Uh, And I know that that was one thing that I did pride myself on in that both at the center and the nonprofit sector is that the uh, AV practitioners that I hired would continue to do AV therapy, but I took on the full load of parent education and every parent had to um, sit with me for at least an hour over 12 to 20 sessions within that first year. And we talked about everything. You know, there was a, a curric- not a curriculum, but an outline that I followed. And it never failed. But years, decades later, parents would say, you know, I really appreciated all that information you gave me. I would have them, we would put it in a notebook. And they need that information. And, you know, our hands are tied when we cannot um, reimburse practitioners for, for imparting that. Um, but somehow I think we have to find a way to do it. And maybe we should be having pre-canned, uh, uh, well, the on, canned packages are not as good because you need that one-on-one. So this is how you understand your child's audiogram. You know, understanding right. a general audiogram doesn't really make any different, mean, have that much meaning to the parent. Um, so anyway, uh, I do believe that we need to change the parent. And when we change the parent, we will change the child. I agree wholeheartedly. I agree. Yeah, I know you do. I know. You know, and one thing that I, that I have noticed, um, you know, with, with COVID, obviously we've seen more telepractice, you know, especially in the, to you, Todd. well, especially in the beginning when everyone had to, you know, do telehealth and telepractice. But I think what I've noticed with even some of the LISL certified people that are out there, when they had to switch over to telepractice, then they really did have to do all that parent coaching because they weren't in the room with those those families, those parents. And I think it was a wake-up call for some people because even though they're LISL certified, they weren't doing really good parent coaching. And now they had to. Exactly. I I happen to agree with you wholeheartedly. And now, uh, even when I occasionally see parents in Florida where I am now, they want me to come and do a consult. I tell them off the bat, I'm not going to do a therapy session. I will mm-hmm. watch you do a therapy session because they're so used to seeing their uh, practitioner. And uh, I we can talk about it then. It, it changed. It, it has changed. The whole ball game, and I think it's. Although I wish we did not have, have I mean, we didn't have the pandemic. It had been uh, a saving grace for many parents, I think, mm-hmm. and they feel so much more, so much more comfortable working with their children. Sure, they 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 know what to do. You know, I think you know you nine times out of ten parents just want to know. Tell me what I need to know and what I need to do. You know, and and when we don't do that, you know, they're, you know, off on their own, you know, getting information from who knows 
somewhere on the internet and in well, other places. Full of misinformation too. Uh, exactly, exactly. And so, yeah. I, let me ask you a question because this has come up uh, before. Um, I have my perspective on this, but about giving parents information. You know, there are some people who say, oh, don't give them too much information. They can't absorb very much at one time. Um, what, what I disagree with that. I think we underestimate the parent. You underestimate, just because the parent doesn't have a, a college degree. We, first of all, we need to stop using professional jargon when mm. we talk to parents. And uh, I think if we space it out, you know, I was, I say to parents all the time, even if, even as a nonprofit, I mean, even as an independent consultant, next week I'm going to come back. You get all your relatives in here. We're all going to talk about this. And without the children, and um, you focus on a particular topic each time. You can't cover the whole thing. And not only that, I know, I've always known, that when it comes to audiology and hearing technology, it takes many sessions for them to understand the basics of it and not only to understand the basics of it, but everybody learns different. So I will say it 20 different ways. I will have it visually. I'll have it auditory, but it's so important. You know, I and you have to get down on their level. And I said to them, if your child um, was visually impaired and we gave you an eyeball, would you take that eyeball out? You would never take the eyeball out. The eyeball always stayed in that child's head. You have to consider the hearing aid as part of the child. It's more important. And, and I grew up where my parents didn't have any resource, very little resources in the 40s and 50s. And we always had to buy our hearing aid. Hearing aid, the hearing technology is more important than a second pair of shoes. It's more important than any, any of the toys that you buy. That is the most important thing you're doing for your child. And your child has to wear it every single moment of his waking hours, except, and if he wants to wear it when he's sleeping, fine. But except when he's in the water. Uh, you know, and you have to get Adam and I, or I always did, and I still do, because parents need to understand how critical it is, how crucial it is, and their kids aren't going to make it if they cannot hear. That hearing device is how they learn whatever it is that we want them to learn. And I remember my father, uh, occasionally, uh, I would get, I had, uh, not occasionally, a lot of ear infection because we had one ear mold all the time. And uh, so I would take my ear out, rest, uh, my ear mold out, rest it, and I'd forget that it was out. After about an hour, my father told me and said, Damn it, I'm talking to you. <laughs> Listen to me, you know, put your hearing aid out. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that on You're uh, fine. <laughs> but you know, he the, my parents would get angry at us when we were not wearing our aids. And I grew up, that's how that's the expectation level you have. The expectation level is there's many aspects to that. It always has to be high. One is that you're gonna hear me all the time. And two, mm -hmm. that you can do anything you want to do. And everything comes, you pay a price, though, for everything. There's a good enough, there's, there's, there's an up and a downside. Nothing comes easy. 
And, you know, it's, it's sort of like a philosophy that's imparted to, it was imparted to me anyway. And um, so I, I don't know. I just feel like uh, it, it's, it's really important that we devote as much time as we can to making sure that these parents understand the gravity of the situation, that the need for consistency and understanding. And the other thing, too, this is aside from, um, I, I get off on, on a tangent lately because of what's happened in lockdown, but I'm, I'm so focused on the hearing health disparities now that um, we need to reach out, really make an effort to reach out to those families that have low resources are, are very constrained and we're, we haven't been doing that. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't do it. I know at the beginning and I ran the AV center, I'll serve whoever comes to my door. The middle class comes to my door. Right. The working class doesn't. We need to go out and find them now um, because they're the ones that are underserved, underrepresented. Right. I agree wholeheartedly. And we got to find ways of of making sure they're connected and getting the services that they need. Um, right. And you know, not not to sort of think of telepractice as being a you know the the answer for every situation, but it does for for families that are in more rural situations uh, or can't travel, have trans- transportation issues. It may be a solution for some families, but and I also- agree with you. Yeah, and also, you know, uh, there, there are lots of surveys done that show, well, uh, you know, uh, particularly the un, those with limited resources, they may not have access to computers. But, you know, almost everybody has a cell phone. Right. And I know that uh, there are many families, not just in this country, but in other parts of the world, that I cannot see them. I never met them over two or three years, but they all have emails. Right. And I can educate them by email. I can send them information and we can talk. And as long as they can read an email, I can, I can, I can simplify my language. And they can learn what to do. Right. And that's, and that's really what I'm seeing right now for uh, some families that are continuing services with me at Akron Children's Hospital and it's more of a telepractice uh, solution for them. Just about all of them connect using their phone, and so you know the idea of you know families sitting at a computer with a big monitor in front of them that doesn't happen as much anymore. It's on a screen so big, you know, a few inches wide, and 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 you have to you have to adjust you know what you're doing because they're looking at something this big, you know, very small. And uh, but it can be done. I mean, you just have to plan for it uh, and and know what kind of technology they're using to access those services. Right. Yeah. We have to make adjustments. There is not ever one way to skin a cat. So we have to be flexible in what we do. Absolutely. And we have to be inclusive. And the other thing, too, is that um, I think with parents, we need to let them know that their children, as they mature, can leverage the label. In other words, um, 
Well, what I mean by that, uh, if you engage in selective disclosure, I was um, mm-hmm. uh, on a Facebook post with um, a bunch of young deaf adults, and um, one of one of them in particular was saying that she's having trouble getting a job. So we had a little private conversation, and found and I come come to find out she's so upfront with her deafness from the get-go, maybe that's an issue that um, she shouldn't be that upfront, but that she just let it come out naturally. You know, it's kind of like I speed a lot, and I shouldn't be saying this, but I do. I, I'm a fast driver, and I speed a lot. And so <laughs> what happens when I get stopped by the cops is I take my hearing aid off, and I, get, and I, put, and I play up the deaf label. And I start to cry, and I'm so sorry, you know, and I get teary. <laughs> and, you know, half of them don't give me a ticket because they're feeling sorry for me. I mean, that's what I'm called. Sure. That's what I mean by leveraging the label or selective disclosure. You know, you have to know when that's not a good thing that I'm doing, you know, speeding. <laughs> but, but I'm saying there are appropriate times. And, I, and I, I admittedly, when I first came into this field, uh, they... Um, uh, an executive director of a nonprofit. You know, I had to go on TV quite a lot, and I had to publicize the fact that I was deaf, and that was just anathema to me. I was just so torn. I didn't want to do that. I had to be comfortable with my my own hearing loss. So it was the upside of it was it was a growing process for me, but the downside of it is that I had to play on the audience empathy. And uh, not right. something uh, with sympathy, I should say, not empathy, but sympathy. And the last thing I want is sympathy from anybody. Don't sympathize for me. But sometimes that's what I had to do to get money, you know, <laughs> for the center. So, you know, you you play uh, you play this uh, strat- you straddle of both worlds sometimes. You have to know when to do it. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I've had some experience with that. And I, and I think, um, I, my, you know, I I don't have hearing loss that I know of, uh, but what I have done when I had a cancer diagnosis, I posted things on Facebook and then I, I put something in my LinkedIn profile, uh, that I was, you know, a cancer patient and had this diagnosis. I think that disclosure actually hurt me with a couple of opportunities that I had because I think I can't prove it, but I think they saw that and said, uh, you know, we're not going to take the risk on him because he may not be around (laughs) much longer or he may, you know, be out. And so, you know, I, it made me take a step back and think about that where I, you know, with social media today, you want to reach out and share news with your friends and colleagues and let people know what's going on. At the same time, you never know in the future who may go back and look at all those posts and how it could potentially be used against you. Absolutely. You know, I'm a big fan of, you know, I've written that hearing or not paper. I'm a big fan of appropriate uh calling the person the person first and then following it with the label. Mm-hmm. But 
there's there are stigmas attached to labor, whether we like it or not. I may not have uh, the stigma of cancer attached to you, but somebody out there does, mm-hmm. and that hurts. But you know that's the reality of this world we live in. That not everybody sees things the same way that we see it. So, uh, yes, yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Well, Ellen, this has been a f- wonderful conversation, and I really appreciate your time and and joining me on the podcast. and And good luck with everything that you're doing. Uh, you know, you you should be sitting on at the beach with your feet up and and look at all the stuff that you're still doing. So I. I admire everything that you're doing for for the field and for me and for all the practitioners that are out there. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. It, I love doing what I do. So yeah, thank you though very much. And it's been an honor to uh, have you interview me. Well, that was the incredible Ellen Rhodes. Thank you again, Ellen, for joining me on The Listening Brain. If you are in auditory verbal therapy or listening in spoken language, and if you don't know of Ellen's work, then you're missing a big component that you need to stomp on those brakes back up and really start reading the articles, the book chapters, and the books that she has written. You will not be disappointed in all the wisdom and real research that she has done and collaborated with others to do. So, again, Alan, I know you're busy. Thank you for being here, and I wish you nothing but continued success in all that you're doing, all your many projects. And thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Please leave us a five-star review. That always helps us to attract new subscribers and spread the word about listening in spoken language. With that, I'll see you in the next episode. Until then, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.